Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning our hearts rejoice that even as we have just confessed in song that the man of sorrows is now the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our hearts rejoice that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He has ascended on high. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. What hope is ours in Christ. And we long for the day when he will return. When his kingdom will come. So Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who live with that kingdom in our eyes and in our minds. Not distracted by the things of this life. Things that we do not understand. Pains and trials that we go through. But ever aware of the coming kingdom of our God. Of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. The resurrection that is ours in Him. Ever aware of the truth that our God lives and with Him so lives our hope. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that even this morning as we look at this passage, that our hearts would soar with these truths. That you would encourage our spirits. Give strength to our souls to go and to spread the good news of our risen, conquering King. That the world may rejoice with us. That your name may be lifted high. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you have a favorite missionary story? I don't know if you've ever read, read these books. I ran down to our uh, library this morning. And there's these Heroes of the Faith books. And there's all these different missionaries. You have David Livingston, William Carey, Jim Elliott, John and Betty Stamm. I don't know if you've ever read these or read other missionary stories. As a kid, I loved reading missionary stories. And yet my favorite missionary story is actually about a missionary that never even made it to the field. It's a missionary by the name of William Borden. And I'll never forget, as a young man, I think I was a junior in high school, when my high school Bible teacher told us the story of William Borden. And it's been a story that has had a deep impact on my life ever since. You see, William Borden was born into a wealthy and influential family in Chicago. He had everything from the world's standards. In fact, when he graduated high school... At 16 years old, before he went to college, his parents gifted him for graduation a gift around the world. This was in the early 1900s. And yet, as William Borden traveled around the world, as he had this unique experience, the thing that impacted him most was the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he traveled around the world, he saw so many people in the dark who had never heard. And so this young man came back with a promise of millions of dollars waiting for him, an inheritance. 
And he told his dad, I'm going to go be a missionary. The story goes that his dad said, if you do that, you are turning your back on your inheritance and you will never have a role in my business. And yet, William Borden was willing to give it up, everything, for the cause of Christ. His desire was to take the gospel to the Uyghur Muslims in China. And so it's with this passion, this singular focus, that Borden attended Yale. And then he furthered his education in Princeton Theological Seminary, graduating in 1912. And all throughout his college and seminary years, he was known for his passion for the gospel, for his maturity in Christ. In fact, one of Borden's professors at Princeton, Charles Erdman, wrote of Borden, his judgment was so unerring and so mature that I always forgot that there was such a difference in our ages. His complete consecration and devotion to Christ were a revelation to me. His confidence in prayer, a continual inspiration. So this young man, William Borden, with all of these resources, with this passion that that, that, that had fueled him, to take the gospel to the Uyghur Muslims. All of this potential. He graduates seminary and he moves to Cairo, Egypt. And his, his goal is to there in Cairo to live among the Muslims. To study Islam in Arabic. And yet it was there in Cairo at 25 years old that William Borden contracted cerebral meningitis and died. All of that promise. All of that passion. And he never made it to the field. What was the point? Was this a life wasted? In fact, the world would tell you that yes, this was a life wasted. A young man with with so much potential, a foolish boy who threw away a fortune for nothing. But William Borden was not living for a fortune. See, William Borden understood, like Jim Elliott, several decades later, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. In fact... On his tombstone, a little Christian cemetery in Cairo are the words, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. William Borden did not waste his life. He gave everything he had to the cause of Christ. Because William Borden understood with Jim Elliott and many others throughout history who did not waste their lives because they understood what truly matters. They knew beyond a shadow of doubt that they were living for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So this morning as we turn our attention to Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24, Uh, to 29, the author of Hebrews reminds us of this same truth. Brothers and sisters, you are living for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So do not allow your hope to be shaken. Do not allow your faith to be shaken. 
It's a passage that reminds the believer of what is yours in Christ, and then it calls us to faithfulness in light of that. Remember what really matters. Cling to hope. Be faithful. So this morning, as we work our way through this passage, we will see your position in Christ and your responsibility in Christ. First thing we see in verses 18 to 24 is your position in Christ. You have to remember that the author of Hebrews is writing to believers. He assumes that they are believers. He is worried for several of them in their midst. That's why he's calling them to faithfulness. He's reminding them to be faithful. Do not fall away. But he's writing to them as if they are believers. There's the assumption here. Which gives him the boldness to then in verse 18 say, For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and burned. The word for there at the beginning of verse 18 connects to the rest of chapter 12. The, the call of the author of Hebrews for his readers to stand fast in the faith, to strengthen their, their weak legs and their weak arms and to stand up, recognize that the discipline of God is a grace of God. It is Him working in you to mold you into His image. It is not something to be despised. So live bold and live faithful in Christ. Why? For you have not come. He starts with the negative here. You have not come here. The author of Hebrews here really compares and contrasts two mountains. Mount Sinai, as we see here in verses 18 to 21, and then he'll get to Mount Zion in verses 22 to 24. You have not come to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a mountain that may be touched. It is physical. It is here on earth. It is a place to which the children of Israel, the Lord took them, where He came down on the mountain and He spoke to them. He gave them the Ten Commandments. They saw the the thunderings and the lightnings. In fact, that's the very thing that this passage touches on. Here in these verses, the author of Hebrews is taking us back to Exodus 19. You have not come to this mountain. Why would he say that? Why would he say that we have not come to Sinai? Look how he goes on to describe Sinai in this passage. You've not come to this mountain, Sinai, this mountain that can be touched, this mountain that, that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that their words should not be spoken to them anymore. This mountain, Sinai, is a mountain that proclaims the holiness and the power and the greatness of God. It is a terrifying thing to behold. In fact, if you were to go back and read Exodus 19 and the retelling of it, even in Deuteronomy 4, It is a powerful image. It is terrifying. In fact, in Exodus 19.9, the Lord very clearly tells Moses, I am going to do this very visibly because I want the children of Israel to see and to hear me. 
I want them to, to believe you. They could not endure what was commanded. The law that was given to them at Sinai seemed completely unbearable. And it is. That is the whole point of Sinai. That you cannot keep this law. You are a sinner and your sin separates you from a holy and a just God. And Sinai very visibly puts that on display. As the whole mountain shakes. As the fire and the clouds and the trumpets are sounding. In fact, there was even a boundary around it. The separation of God between sinful man was so clear. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. You must stay back. The extreme divide between God and sinful creation and man. In fact, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Sinai. It proclaims the power, the holiness, the greatness, the justice of God. And the complete inability of man to get anywhere near to God in his own efforts. Sinai proclaims that man is separated from God. It's a mountain to which you come in fear and judgment. And yet before you lose hope, go back to the beginning of 18 and remember what the author of Hebrews said. You have not come to this mountain. But in verse 22, by the grace of God, you have come to Mount Zion. In fact, as you work your way through this passage, there's all kinds of contrast between these two mountains. Whereas Mount Sinai represents the law, it represents judgment and separation, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion represents the grace of God, acceptance. By the grace of God, you have come to Mount Zion. What is this Mount Zion? Physically, often in the Old Testament, Mount Zion refers to uh, Jerusalem. One of the mountains on which Jerusalem is built is Zion. But Zion has an uh, eschatological meaning as well, often pointing forward to even new Jerusalem. In fact, that's what we have here. In fact, in case there's any Question, the author of Hebrews goes here to make it very clear. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, the kingdom of our God. To the city of the living God, this very same city that Hebrews 11.10 tells us that Abraham was looking for a city whose builder is God. That is this city to which in Christ you have come. Heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 22, 23, and 24 then go on to explain the greatness of this city described by the inhabitants of this city. 
Who else is here? Well, you have come to this new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Into the very presence of angels. Angels are great beings. They are terrifying beings. Yet Hebrews reminds us that they are not to be worshipped. In fact, in the very beginning, in Hebrews 1, what is one of the first points that the author of Hebrews makes? That Jesus is far superior to angels. And yet in this heavenly Jerusalem, there's an innumerable company of angels. Interesting, Galatians 3.19 also tells us that angels were present at Sinai. Inscribing the law for men. And yet, at Mount Sinai, man could not come into their presence. And yet, in Zion, we are in the company of angels. To the general assembly, the idea there is a festal gathering, and it likely ties back to the idea of angels. These angels who are gathered, they are gathered in joyful celebration because this Mount Zion is a joyful place to be. It is a place of rejoicing. And so right there from the beginning, whereas Mount Sinai is a place of judgment and fear, we see here from the very beginning that this Mount Zion, this heavenly Jerusalem, is a place from which we come in in confidence and in rejoicing in Christ. Not only that, not only this this numerable myriad of angels who are rejoicing in this festal gathering, but look who else is here. The church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. The church is there. It's kind of an odd thing to say to a church, is it not? You're coming to where the church is. Well, we are the church. But the church of all the ages... The church universal, past and present. Those literally there and those who have a right to be there. The church of the firstborn. In fact, that idea of firstborn there, in the original language here, it is in the plural. Where Jesus Christ, he is the firstborn, and in Christ we have all the rights of the firstborn. We too are firstborn in Christ. We do not get a lesser inheritance, but even as Romans 8, verses 15 to 17 and 29 to 30 remind us, we are fellow heirs with Christ as the firstborn. This is a church made up of all who are firstborn in Christ. Who have all the rights of salvation and glorification in Christ. The church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Lamb's book of life. Those who have their name written down. As we see in Revelation 21, 27 as referenced in Luke 10, verse 20. You see, you know you are not coming to a place where you do not belong. You are coming to a place where you have all the rights and privileges because you do belong here in Christ. 
the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, but not just that, but God, the judge of all. God himself is here. Note the the clear separation in verses 18 to 21 between God and man, and yet in verses 22 to 24, we come not just to the presence of angels, not just gathered as the church, but we come to the very presence of God, the judge. But that's an odd way to phrase it, is it not? You would think there'd be a different way in in this festal gathering of the church and angels, and even as we see Old Testament saints in just a second, you'd think that the author of Hebrews would have said, and to God our King, or to God all-powerful, or something other than judge. Why is he saying judge? I thought judgment was from Sinai. Because it's a reminder that the same God of Sinai is the same God of Zion. God has not changed. He is still God our judge, and yet in Christ we are found to be righteous. It's a reminder of the beauty of grace that God has not changed. His standard has not changed. He is ever the same, all-powerful, holy, just God. What has changed is our standing before Him in Christ. God is there. But it's not just the angels. It's not just the church. And and it's not just God. But even to the spirits of just men made perfect. Old Testament saints. You have the church and the Old Testament saints together in this place worshiping God. How precious and sweet it must be. These saints who waited so long for their faith to become sight. Now rejoicing with the church of the firstborn. Together glorying in the grace of God. But that's not all. It's not just angels. It's not just the church of the firstborn. It's not just God, the judge of all. It's not just the Old Testament saints. It is Jesus Christ himself is there. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to a blood of sprinkling. It is Jesus, the one who inaugurates and guarantees the new covenant by his blood. Jesus, the one in whom all of our hope and salvation is tied Jesus, our Savior, our High Priest, our King, He is there. Not separated from us. He's there with us. In fact, He is the one who guarantees our entrance and our right to be there. He is the one who is the mediator of this new covenant. And it is His blood The blood of the sprinkling that speaks a better word, better things than that of Abel. What in the world does that mean? You may remember back in Genesis 4, verses 8 to 12, that as Cain kills Abel, the Lord comes to Cain and he says, 
The blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me from the ground. And what is it crying for? It's crying for justice. You see, the blood of Abel cried for justice, but Jesus' blood satisfies justice. The blood of Abel cries for condemnation, but the blood of Jesus Christ speaks of grace. And so it does speak a better word than that of Abel. It speaks the word that gives us the right to be here on Mount Zion with our God, with our brothers and sisters, with these angels, with these Old Testament saints, with God our judge and Jesus our Savior. We rejoice in that blood. We have been cleansed in that blood. Do you see how triumphant this passage is? As the author of Hebrews takes these two mountains and he compares them, you have not come in fear and judgment. You have come in acceptance and grace and joy and hope in Christ. That is your position in Christ. That is your right. That is your hope. So then in verses 25 to 29, the author of Hebrews moves forth after using this illustration. These two mountains, this is where you belong, this is your right, and now this is your responsibility. Because of who you are in Christ, because of what is yours, what God has given you in Christ, what is rightfully yours, as one of the church of the firstborn, this is how you should respond. Notice verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Don't refuse him. Don't deny or reject him. You see, this is the very thing that that these believers to whom Hebrews is written was struggling with, is it not? The world is pulling them in two different directions. They have Jerusalem pulling them here, and they have Rome pulling them here. And they are caught in the middle and they feel all alone and persecution is is bearing down on them. And they are tempted to, to leave it all behind, to deny Christ. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't you see what is yours in Christ? Don't deny Him. Don't refuse Him. Don't reject Him. Rather, respond rightly. Listen and be faithful. Don't make the mistake of Esau, as we saw last week. Esau, who was so short-sighted that he gave up what was his, his birthright, for stew. There's a quote from my great-grandfather. I used it last week. It says this, Do not sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. That's what Esau did. Brothers and sisters, do not make that same mistake. Do not sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. 
do not give up eternity. Mount Zion for comfort. Because remember, God is the judge of all. If they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, that's referring to God speaking from Sinai, much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven, God speaking from Zion, this heavenly Jerusalem. Much more. They did not escape. You will not escape. In fact, much more will you not escape. It's an argument here from lesser to greater. If God's word was true, spoken on earth, it is all the more true, spoken from heaven. Just this past week, on a Wednesday, in Psalm 107, you remember as we worked our way through that psalm, the psalmist uses smaller examples of deliverance through Israel's history to call their attention to a greater promised deliverance of God. Here the author of Hebrews is doing the opposite. He's using a lesser judgment to guarantee and heighten the reader's awareness of a greater coming judgment. If these Israelites at Sinai, they did not escape God's judgment. We know the story, do we not? They didn't listen. In fact, right there at Sinai, they built a golden calf. And then between Sinai and Canaan, time and time again, they rebelled and they got there right to the edge of their promised inheritance. And what did they do? Did they cross in victorious and joyful, taking hold of what God has promised? No. They refused God. They doubted Him. They didn't believe Him. They failed to take hold of what He had promised. It's not just a greater guarantee of judgment, but it's an infinitely greater degree of judgment. It is not just the promised land that is at stake. It is eternity. If God did not spare them, who ignored his words spoken from earth on Mount Sinai, do you think that he will spare you whom he has spoken from heaven? His voice shook the earth at Sinai. It was regional. It was right there around that mountain. But he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. That was a small, that was a local shaking, but God is coming again, and this time the whole earth and universe will shake. It's actually a quote from Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6. As the Lord is talking to Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the people are discouraged by the temple that they are building, and God reminds them, I will fill this with glory. I am coming. I will shake the world. There's a greater shaking that is coming. 
fact, verse 27 goes on to explain this. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. This yet once more, it's not a promise of there'll be a little bit more shaking later. Rather, it is a promise of a, a final shaking, a judgment. This will be the last one, a time that will be so great that it removes everything that can be shaken. It doesn't just rearrange things on earth, but notice it says, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. This time of coming judgment will be so great that everything that has been tainted, distorted, perverted by sin will be destroyed as of things that are made physical. To what end? Why would God do this? That the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The kingdom of our God. Because He is coming. And because He will make all things right. This is a reminder to these believers that the end is coming and so live with your eyes on eternity. The things in, in this world that you are clinging to, that are tempting you to leave the Lord, to, to leave the Lord and, and to leave the promises that He has made you, they're all going to be gone one day. Because judgment is coming, and this world and everything in it will be destroyed. And one thing will remain, one thing matters, and that is the kingdom of our God. Brothers and sisters. That is exactly what William Borden understood. That is why he gave up millions of dollars to follow the Lord, to be faithful, to go where no one else is willing to go. Do you understand that? Or has your heart been trapped by the shiny things of this life have you become distracted? Are you clinging to things that in the end, they won't even matter? Because when judgment comes, they will burn up with everything else. And only the kingdom of God will remain. Therefore, having this eternal mindset, understanding the kingdom that is coming, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Since we are receiving, it's even present. Your names are already written down in heaven. We already saw that. This is guaranteed. In fact, you are receiving it even now. See, there's a sense in which the kingdom has not come, and yet you are citizens of the kingdom. That is where your true citizenship lies. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This world is not your home. You're just passing through, as the song says. You're a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, so live like it. 
Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to live like we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken? That's what the author of Hebrews says here in verses 28 to 29. Let us have grace. That word grace, translated by the King James, the New King James here, as grace, and many other translations, the CSB, the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, they have the idea of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Let us live gratefully. Let us live with thanksgiving. Let us live mindfully and thankfully. Why? Because through that, with that mindset, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. See, don't have the mindset of the Israelites who on the edge of the land that had been promised to them failed to enter because they failed to take hold. We too. It's as if we too are standing on the edges of Jordan and we have a promised kingdom. Don't make the same mistake they did. Don't turn back and grumble and complain and fear. But have a mindset of thankfulness, of faith, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Not to take him lightly. And do not be mistaken here either. God does care how we worship him. He does care how we serve. There's an acceptable way to do that. In fact, that's exactly what we see here. It's this attitude of thankfulness, relying on his grace by which we serve God acceptably. And what does that look like? It looks like reverence and godly fear. Awe of him. In fact, one commentator, Allen, says this appropriate godly fear guarantees our focus will remain on God's grace as the only way possible that we can ever be saved from our sin and serve the Lord. It is that godly fear, that reverence of the Lord that reminds us that He is a God to be feared, that He is not to be taken lightly, that he is still the God of justice and holiness at Sinai. It is not he that has changed. It is our position in Christ that has been changed. So do not take him lightly. In fact, the author of Hebrews reminds his readers here in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Interestingly, this is the second time that the author of Hebrews has deliberately reminded his audience of the holiness and the justice of God in kind of a unique place. He did it in the midst of talking about Zion, God the judge, and he's done it here after calling us. We are people of this kingdom that, that will not be shaken. Our hope is sure, but remember that your God is a consuming fire. It's a reminder not to take him lightly. Do not allow the grace of God to soften your view of God. 
In fact, allow it to intensify your worship and your thankfulness. May the grace of God open your eyes all the more to the glory and the beauty of that grace. That God's grace could span that chasm between God and man. That a God so holy is also a God so merciful and gracious. That in Christ, He is just and justifier. As Romans 3.26 reminds us, may these realities cause you to lean all the more into the grace of your God. May they open your eyes all the more to how unworthy, undeserving, and unable you are to earn his pleasure. Brothers and sisters, this is a passage that fills our hearts with joy and hope. It reminds us of the kingdom to keep our focus right. It reminds us of what is ours in Christ. And yet at the same time, it reminds us of just how great and holy our God is. So a couple points of application. Number one, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you don't know if your name is written down in heaven. Maybe you don't know if you are in Christ. In fact, maybe you know for a fact that I have never placed my faith in Christ. I've never believed. But I want to. This morning, I see the the holiness and the justice of God, and I do not want to be condemned. I know that the wages of my sin is death, and I stand before this holy God condemned. If that is you this morning, then I pray that you have also seen the other side of God, His grace and His mercy, and I pray that you will fall down before Him and confess your sins and cry out for salvation. Because His mercy is more than all the sins that you have ever committed and ever will commit. And He will forgive you. And He will save you if you will just cry out to Him. So even this morning as we close with our final song, will you fall down, repent, and believe before this awesome, holy, and gracious God? Come to the front and seek me out, and I would love nothing more. I'll be standing right down here. I'd love nothing more than to take you out, to open the Bible, to answer your questions, and to point you to Jesus Christ. Do not leave this place this morning without being sure. Secondly, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are sure of your salvation, may this be a passage that opens your eyes reminds you of the seriousness of your responsibility in Christ. Rejoice in your position, but do not take it lightly. 
Maybe this morning you need to repent of your short-sightedness and of your complaining. Maybe you've become distracted by the things of this world. Turn back. Repent. Maybe this morning you need to repent of your cavalier or your casual attitude towards God. Maybe by your actions you, you have cheapened His grace. Brothers and sisters, do not take Him lightly. Won't you repent? Won't you commit to live and to worship thankfully, keeping your eyes on eternity, remembering that you are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that that is what matters. So do not become distracted. Maybe, as we've worked our way through this passage, maybe your heart is thrilled. Maybe the Lord is doing something in you, but you just, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to respond. I'd simply ask you this question this morning. How do you think your life would look different if you embraced this truth? If you were truly, fully submitted to the Lord, how would your life look different? What things are getting in the way, are distracting you, are holding you back? Make the change. Get rid of those things. Take seriously your call in Christ.